It's been a while since I've been up here, but I think I'm supposed to say, Good morning, church! <laughs> Before we uh, to, uh, get into the passage that Zane just read to us, I want to introduce you to our newest sister in Christ. Margarita Contreras was baptized yesterday in the swimming pool at Medina Children's Home. Where is she? And we are just thrilled to have you as a new sister in Christ. And we want to uh, congratulate you and brag on you for making that decision to follow Jesus. And we're looking forward to seeing the same thing happen with all these children as they grow older and come to know Jesus like you do. But God bless you, sweetheart. It's nice to stand before you again. Um, I'd say it's nice to see you, but with my morning vision, that wouldn't be completely true. I can see some of you. Um, and, and I'm going to pretend like I can see all of you and that you're all smiling at me. I'd like to take a moment to thank our shepherds for working with me in this recent pulpit preacher transition our congregation has gone through. The increase in enthusiasm and attendance and giving proved that it was a wise decision. And I also thank them and I thank you for allowing me time to determine what my service to God will look like now that I'm no longer your preacher. I'm still a little bit foggy on how that's all going to work out. But I hope to prove myself to be a valuable asset to this congregation in the coming months and years. And lastly, I'd like to say a word about Jimmy Sportsman. Personally, I have been very pleased and impressed with the energy, the intelligence, and the spiritual vigor he brings to this church. I look forward to hearing him preach every Sunday. And I can't say that about every preacher I know. He's in love with God, in love with his wife, in love with his job. And he tells me almost every day he's coming to love you more and more and more. We're fortunate to have him. And I hope that God will give him many successful years here. I was in a quandary about what to preach today, and then the Bernie Church bailed me out. They invited me to speak in their summer series this coming Wednesday night and assigned me a passage. So you get to be my practice audience for an assigned sermon due Wednesday night in Bernie. So let's get to it. Uh, let me begin. Let's see. Where's the right button on this thing? Okay. Let me begin with a story that will illustrate a challenge we're going to have with this text. Uh, there were some American missionaries who went to a country that values groups of people more than individuals. Japan has such a culture. Uh, China has a culture like that. Sociologists call them communal cultures. 
They're places where the opinion and the traditions of the group outweigh the wishes of individuals. And that creates a cultural gap between them and us that's much bigger than most of us realize. Here's how the missionaries discovered it. They set up a croquet game out in their front yard. Now, that right there tells you they weren't from Texas. I mean, who plays croquet? But these missionaries did. And as they were playing, several of the natives, uh, their neighbors, became interested in this strange game, and they wanted to play. And so the missionaries explained the game to them, started them out, gave them a mallet, and gave them a ball, and showed them how to hit the ball through the wickets and make their way along the course. And as the game went on, an opportunity came for one of the native players to knock another player's ball out of the court. Now, in croquet, that's a winning strategy. So the missionary explained the procedure to him. But his advice only puzzled this native player. And he asked, why would I want to knock his ball out of the court? And the missionary said, well, so you'll be the winner. And the native just looked at him and shook his head in bewilderment. The game continued, but none of the natives followed the missionary's advice of knocking their opponent's balls out of the court. When a player successfully made his way through all the wickets, the game wasn't over for him. He went back and helped the guys who were still behind him. And gave them advice and encouragement. And as the final player was moving toward the last wicket, the whole affair looked like a team effort. And finally, when the last wicket was made by the last guy, the team shouted happily, We won! We won! And the Americans just stood there shaking their heads in bewilderment. You see, we live in an individualistic society, not a communal society. The New Testament was written to a communal culture where individuals play second fiddle to socially expected behavior and where you just don't do anything that might bring shame to your family or your clan or your countrymen, no matter how much it may advance you personally. And the rules of honor and shame guide their behavior much more than their own personal bucket list or, or career dreams. That, that worldview is such a radical difference from what ours is that we really can't grasp it all. But it's going to make this passage much more difficult for us to put into practice, at least to put into practice what the author intended. As I said, we are an individualistic society. I'm not making a value judgment about it. I'm just observing a sociological reality. We're individualists. And it's not because it's necessarily better. It's because of where we were born and how we were raised and what we've been taught our whole lives. Individualistic societies place great value on independence and self-reliance over group membership. 
or even care for others, especially when those others do not include close family or really, really close friends. Now, I'm not saying we don't value community, but when the rubber meets the road, we naturally favor me over we. Individual rights are a hot button to us. Don't you dare deny me my rights. And I think a fair motto for the American mindset, the Western mindset, is watch out for number one. Power to the individual is one of our dominating values. Allegiance to self is more important than allegiance to some group. Now, in communal cultures, the group is of paramount importance. And individuals are expected to place the good of the group above their own personal interest. Where individualists would say, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. A communal culture, communal culture would say the nail that sticks up will be hammered down. I thought of this the other day when I was watching an old Star Trek movie. Just happened to come in on the end of it. It's the one where Spock dies in the end. Um, you Trekkies remember? Spock sacrificed his life by exposing himself to radiation in order to save the Enterprise and to keep the bad guys from gaining the ultimate weapon of destruction. And as he lay dying on the engine room floor in this sealed, radiated, radiation-contaminated compartment, Captain Kirk was on the other side of the containment field, and they could talk to each other. And Spock explained his actions How many of you Trekkies remember what he said? The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or of the one. Now that is a communal principle. That the group is of greater value than the individual. On the surface, we would be okay with that. Until the cost of supporting the group is more than we're willing to pay. See, our natural cultural bent is to watch out for self first and others second. Well, so much in this passage challenges that cultural mindset, that worldview, that a lot of this is going to seem strangely unnatural to us even anti-intuitive, maybe even downright dumb. So be aware, when you read the Bible, you're reading words to a communal culture. And not everything Scripture says about the importance of brothers and sisters or neighbors or enemies will sound natural to us. Now, with that prelude... Let me read the passage I've been assigned. First, I'll read the verse, and then I'll read the context. My specific passage in in Bernie's Wednesday night series is Romans 12 and 10, the first part of it. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Now, the obvious question here is, what does devoted mean? What does it mean to be devoted to someone or to something? Well, let's check an English dictionary. 
My Webster New World College Dictionary has several definitions for devotion. But the one that comes the closest is loyalty or deep affection. Now, I see a big difference between loyalty and deep affection. Uh, I, I can be loyal to someone or to something that I don't even like. I'm loyal about paying my taxes, but I don't like it. I'm loyal about obeying the speed limit. And with my vision these days, I'm, I'm, I kind of like that. We can be loyal to something we don't like. So what is it? Loyalty or deep affection that he's asking of us? What does Paul have in mind here? Well, Let's use a dictionary from his language. And when we do, we'll discover that the phrase translated be devoted here comes from one of four Greek words for love. Now, most of you have heard the sermons on the four Greek words for love. One of those words is eros, the base of our word erotic. It's for sensual love. The Bible doesn't discuss it. The big one is agape. It's the word that the Bible usually uses when the writers are telling us to love others, like love your neighbor or love your enemies. Agape is not necessarily an emotion. It's a decision of the will more than a feeling of emotion. See, love your enemies doesn't necessarily mean like them because liking is emotional. Agape means goodwill. Want the best thing for them. Seek their welfare. Act in their best interest. And we can do that with our enemies. We can do that with our neighbors despite who they are. No matter how we feel about them, we can choose to treat them fairly, treat them decently, even kindly. Because agape is a decision of the will, not an emotion. You all know that. I won't belabor that point. Except to tell you that the Greek word translated be devoted here is not agape. You know another Greek word for love is phileo. By the way, all of these Greek terms I'm pronouncing, I'm pronouncing with a South Texas accent. Who knows what they really sound like in Greek? But phileo is the Greek word for love that includes emotion, fondness, affection. The New Testament mentions affectionate love only about 24 times in all of its various Noun, verb, or adjective forms. It's pretty rare in the Bible. The word translated be devoted in verse 10, though, is not phileo. You might remember, if you listened real hard to those sermons on love, a fourth Greek word for love that's storge. And it's the love that describes family love, the love of a parent. For a child. The form 
or a form of storge is the Greek word translated here, be devoted, in verse 10. Now, I said all that to point out that all three of those Greek words for love are found in verses 9 and 10. A literal rendering of verse 9 would sound like agape, goodwill toward others, must be sincere, must be genuine. In verse 10, the word translated be devoted, I think I might have missed something here. Yeah. Um, is talking about family love. And, and, and so, and it's the only place in the New Testament where that word is used. Be devoted literally means love like family. And then we find phileo used in the phrase brotherly love. So a literal rendering of this sentence would sound something like goodwill must be sincere, agape. With family love, storge. Have brotherly affection, phileo. All three Greek words for love are found in these two lines. And they're all commands. Have genuine agape for each other. On top of that, have affection to the point of loving like family. And so the NIV translates it, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. But the way Scripture stacks and combines these three words for love indicate that the relationships we have in Christ are not motivated merely by our will, agape, but they include emotion, phileo, to the level of family affection, storge. See, the communal aspect of Christianity cannot be overstated. God's rules for living in his kingdom are to be genuinely concerned about each other and to feel fond family-like affection for each other too. So the writer's definition of devotion here is on a par with family affection, which to me is much more than loyalty. Well, that's a bunch of theory. How do we put it into practice? How's it lived out? We could come up with our own list of ways to show loyalty. But I have another idea. Let Scripture speak. Let's use the Greek definition of devotion here, family affection, and look at the surrounding verses and see if they give us any ideas about how to express family-like affection toward each other. And I'm going to start with verse 9 and just read through the end of the chapter. And while I'm reading, I hope you'll focus on ways that our genuine concern and close fondness can be expressed. But don't be surprised if some of it sounds a little extreme to you. Verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another 
above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. But be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. Do not take revenge, my friends. But leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it's mine to revenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's inspired list of specific ways we act in each other's best interest, agape. And we express our affection, phileo, like family, storge. And some of it looks pretty easy. I mean, we don't have much trouble with verse 13, share with God's people who are in need. Y'all do that wonderfully. The next phrase doesn't bother us much. Practice hospitality. We at least believe in it. Even though it might have been months or years since we've had anybody into our home, uh, we, we believe that's a good thing. Or verse 5, uh, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. We're good at that. They don't, those three commandments don't offend our sensibilities. And we can even make some... Um, Make some sense of be joyful in hope, um, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Because you see, when we are that way, we encourage others to be that way. Living that way is good for the group as well as for the individual. Nothing about this seems strange to us. But you've got to admit that some of the other stuff, it butts heads with our individualistic, nobody has a right to tell me how to act mindset. Verse 10b, honor one another above yourselves. (laughs) That doesn't fit with a watch out for number one way of living, does it? Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And by bless, he means bring blessings into their lives, not just force yourself to say nice things about them even though you don't really mean it. Live in harmony with one another. 
Well, that's one we all preach, but you know how that really works. We will live in harmony as long as you do things my way. Do not be proud. Oops. Back up. Let me see. Yeah. Do not be proud. What does that mean? Well, he tells us. Be willing to associate with people of um, low position, he calls it. Who are the people of low position in this town? And do you know any of them? Do you associate with any of them? Who are the people of low position in this church? And when was the last time you invited them with your group to go to lunch or to come over to your house for a time of fellowship together? He goes on with some things that are just really hard to take. Verse 17. I've been led to believe that tit for tat is where it's at in Western society. When people do you wrong, nobody's going to blame you if you get even with them. But God says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. And then he also says, be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everybody. I mean, how does God's advice there square up with our attitude of ain't nobody got no right to tell me what to do? And I don't care what anybody thinks. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everybody. Why would he ask us such a thing so we won't bring shame on our group? Verse 18, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. The burden of maintaining peace within family, at work, with neighbors, at school, the burden falls on us, the Christ followers. We are to be the peacemakers. Don't take revenge, my friends. Preacher, are you telling me that when somebody insults me on Facebook or Twitter for the whole world to see, I shouldn't give it back to them with both barrels? No. I didn't say that. God said that. And he's not condemning a need for revenge. God knows when revenge is appropriate, and he promises to take care of it himself. Leave room for God's wrath. It's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, verse 20 really goes against our individualistic watch-out-for-number-one preoccupation. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap coals, burning coals, on his head. Well, that burning coals part at the end kind of makes that palatable, doesn't it? Well, okay, we'll kill them with kindness. We're just going to make sure they're dead as a doornail when we're done. 
And he concludes, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with. Now, how would our media complete that sentence? Overcome evil with force. Overcome evil with overwhelming firepower. Overcome evil with shock and awe. Overcome evil with a lawsuit. Overcome evil by doing worse to them than they did to you so they'll know not to do it again. No, that's not what God says. God says overcome evil with good. Now, why would God call us to such a radical, unnatural approach to living? Well, I can see two reasons. One, we represent God's kingdom on earth today. We're his representatives. We're his advertisements showing what kingdom life will be like. And it will not be an individualistic society. I believe Romans 12 shows us how God designed the world to be when he made it. But the fall into sin changed all that. And when the kingdom comes in full, God will change it back and make it right. For now, we show the way. And a second reason he calls us to such a radical response is the we approach to life is God's way of doing things. He is a we. He's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, living together in such perfect unity that instead of three, they're one. And because we're created in his image, God designed us to be part of a community. A me lifestyle is not the best way to live. God declared early on in Genesis, it's not good for man to be alone. Me is inferior to we. And that's because we emulates God. Simon and Garfunkel hit song of of the 60s entitled, I am a rock, I am an island, is a lie. We need each other. Our greatest fulfillment is found in we relationships. Now here's the catch. You can't have a we without a group of me's. But a group of me's doesn't necessarily constitute a we. Until each of the me's surrenders his or her individualistic tendencies For the welfare of the group. Hey. You've probably tried being just a me. An island that doesn't need anybody. And that didn't work out too well, did it? 
Why not try it God's way? Find the we in me. I wholeheartedly recommend Christianity as a guiding lifestyle to the most abundant life you can have. And I recommend this church as a place where your me can find your we. Join your me to a we in family-like affection. And you just see what God has in store for you. Let's stand together and sing. As the Lord.